0: Welcome back, everybody, to KickServeRadio.com, Tennis On Air with Andy Zoden, joined by Steve Flink, the author of the greatest tennis matches of all time. We've just now, Steve, finished the Paris-London swing. And as far as the greatest tennis matches of all time are concerned, certainly the one that would qualify first out of those two tournaments was at Wimbledon men's final.
1: Absolutely. I mean, think about it, Andy. This is the third final between Novak Djokovic and Rogers Federer on the center court. Djokovic had also beaten Roger in the finals of the U.S. Open once in 2015 and had lost to him the first time they'd ever played in the majors. They've had this phenomenal rivalry, and uh, here was Federer at 37, having come off his win over Rafael Nadal in the semifinals. Djokovic, the clear favorite to win this title, to defend his title. And, of course, there was so much riding on it historically because it's either going to be his 16th major or Roger's 21st. So it makes a big difference because Novak would have been stuck at 15, Roger would have soared to 21, and that would have seemed like a, an awfully big hurdle. Instead, he ends up closing the gap to 2016. So there were, in, there were immense historical implications. It, it was a curious match, as the British would say, in the sense that they had a great first set tiebreaker to, to Novak from 5 3 down. He won at 7 points to 5. And then he He just seemed to drift in the second set. He was sort of listless. He was trying so hard to stay subdued that he almost became too subdued, in my view. And the next thing you know, he's lost his serve three times in the second set, having not been broken in the first. And Roger waltzes through that set confidently, uh, 6-1. And then they go to the third, and Novak sort of plugs back in again. He's still not returning well. Didn't really return well for most of the first four sets, but he did. Start getting first serves in. He did start to play much better from the baseline, especially on his own serve. And once again, they go to a tiebreak, and he wins that tiebreak seven four. Plays it very confidently and very consistently. And Roger, as was the case in the first set tiebreak, made some crucial errors off his forehand side. So now, onto the fourth, I'm wondering: okay, Djokovic up two sets to one. Is this is he going to this time uh, try to cement what he's done and and put this match out of reach and win it in four and it was quite similar in a sense. They went to two all this time in that set, and then Novak lost his serve two times running, and Roger eventually won the set 6-4. But, Andy, it was, as, it was really the fifth that made this match spectacular, because that's where Djokovic broke for 4-2, seemed to have an, uh, be in a commanding position, and uh, Roger broke right back, and then they go to 7-all, and Roger breaks... Uh, Novak, and he's serving for the match, and gets. that's where he had the double match point. And for the third time in his career, we had Novak coming from double match point down to defeat Roger Federer, as improbable as that would seem, because it happened in the semis of the U.S. Open in 2010 and 11 in quite similar fashion. And he somehow managed to uh, coax an error on the first match point and then hit a forehand pass on the second off a sort of an ineffectual approach from Roger. And then eventually Novak, who fights up break points at 11-all, wins it in a fifth-set tiebreaker. So all three sets he won, Andy, were in tiebreaks. He won 14 fewer points in the match. Obviously, all the stats point to a Federer victory, but it was Djokovic who played the crucial points Uh, much better than his opponent and in the the clutch he was the much better player and he and he deserved the triumph in the end wholeheartedly but the fact that that this set was so pendulum swinging and often so high quality that's why i think we have to put this in in a special category up there maybe among the top 10 men's matches of all time
0: let's look at the men's game as a whole right now steve roger federer comes back in 2017 and after six months off wins Australia, wins Wimbledon, Rafa wins the other two. And for a while, it's all Roger and all Rafa. And now it's back to being all Novak. Now he's won four out of five. The big three have won the last 10 majors. Is this good or is this getting old? Is this How was the best sort of 25, 26, 27-year-old on the planet nowhere near that final and it doesn't look like the next guy is necessarily to be identified yet and these guys as great as they are and i mean they're all very special champions it's amazing that they've been able to ward off this next generation what is your take on all of that
1: well i I, I think it's complicated it's 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 I have a mixed reaction and in a a sense i think i think there's more there's an awful lot that's positive in terms of looking at, at at the dominance of the the big three there's more to be said for that. Now, now, on the flip side of the coin, we keep waiting. You've got Zarev, who started winning Masters 1000s a couple of years ago, who wins the ATP Tour Finals at the end of last year, and he's been a big flop at the majors, never been beyond the quarters. You had Sissipas, who had a terrific breakthrough in Australia, beating Roger in four sets without losing his serve coming from behind to the win, win that match and make the semifinals over there and lose to Rafa, and you're thinking maybe he's on the verge of something substantial here, and he, but he lost to Stan Wawrinka in uh, the French, and it seemed to carry over and, and led to a first-round loss at Wimbledon because his confidence has just had declined so precipitously. So there, there's a couple of guys who I think are going to be in, in that mix very soon, and then, then you have someone like Felix auger Elisiane, the the brilliant young Canadian, who, uh, you know, won a couple of rounds at Wimbledon, thought he might get a crack at Djokovic, but lost in the third round. And I think it'll take him a year or two, but he'll be in the forefront before long. So, yes, there's some negatives. The, the likes of, of Zarev and, and now Sisi Pash, you want to see them make that next step. And then Dominic Team, we talked about how great he was. You mentioned the French. Once again in the finals, and, and, and uh, he's had this great run of a couple of semis, now two finals in a row. Uh, to Rafa, but uh, the most he has to show for it is one set in the two matches. So wh- when will one of these guys step up? The game does need it. I don't think necessarily at the U.S. Open, Andy. I think the fans would be more than happy to have that final contested between, you know, have it settled among Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. They'd be thrilled with that. But next year, at least one major, we we do need somebody to uh, claim their first crown at, at a Big Four event. And I'm cautiously optimistic that it will happen.
0: And it's almost unfairly daunting for the next crop of great players to have to look at the standard that's been set. It's kind of like telling a kid, okay, you want to be a high jumper? All right, here's what you got to do. You see that building? I need you to start by jumping over that. And and you're looking up at this thing and you're thinking to yourself, well, gosh, you know, if 27, 28-year-old kid, whoever that might end up being, whether it's team or one of the ones you mentioned, Tsitsipas or Zverev or uh, Ajay Asimi any one of them, Shapovalov, who knows, but they're going to win their fourth or fifth major, whoever that may be, and then they're going to go, keep it going, kid, you're only 15 shy of being mentioned among the greats of all time, and it just seems to me like at least even our lifetime, we're not going to see anything that's going to approach. I just say it's the best era of men's tennis of all time. It's not even close.
1: It is. It is. I, I agree with you, and I agree with you on all of that. And I, I, I think when we are talking about the greatest ever, certainly among the post Second World War players, we can't leave out Rod Laver and Pete Sampras either. And I right. do believe that. I do believe that. Although this is clearly the greatest era with that big three, that overall, Sampras faced tougher opposition because. You had people like Krychek and Isovich and these big servers, the guy Boris Becker. He had to play all different styles, Andre, Jim, Michael. Right, you know, he dealt with Becker, Ivanisevic, Krychek, a little bit with Steak, some with, at the end of Edberg's career. There were so many different styles that he had to combat, and there, and he could fear that on a given day somebody might serve him off the court. There were just more dangers lurking in the in those draws in his day. So we have to take that into consideration. But to get back to your original point, I do think that the fans really have, have, have they have so much affection, especially for Federer and Nadal, and. They have an appreciation for Novak. He doesn't get the affection he deserves. He's not the same beloved figure that Nadal and Federer are. And uh, I must say, I have sympathy for him on that because I think he's, you know, he has so many great traits himself. But the fans do appreciate all three of these guys. They will miss them for sure. On the other hand, there comes a point where you've got to have some uh, young players step up and not, not only win one major, but win a few. And it t- as you know, Andy, it tends to work that way. Look at Andy Murray. You know, he waited so long for the 2012 Open to finally break through because of this this prodigious trio we've just been talking about. But Andy ended up winning a couple of Wimbledon's and an Open and two gold medals. So even if he doesn't make a successful singles comeback now, he's got that uh, on his resume and he's sure to go in the Hall of Fame someday. Stan Vavrinka. Very late into his 20s. Look how long it took Stan. And the next thing you know, Stan managed to win a French, a U.S. and an Australian. The only one he hasn't won is Wimbledon. So you know he too managed to somehow squeeze out three in this in this remarkable era. So you hope that whoever does come along, whether it's Felix, whether it's uh, you know whether whether it's uh, Zverev or or Sissabas, that once they do break that barrier, that they keep going and become moldable Grand Slam champions. And I suspect that will be the case.
0: All right, let's turn to the women's game, Steve. It wasn't one of the greatest matches, per se, of all time, but it may have been one of the greatest First week in a Grand Slam debut weeks, and that was Coco Gauff at Wimbledon. I mean, she absolutely stole the show.
1: Did she play Wimbledon, Andy?
0: Yeah. Did you not hear, Steve? <laughs> I wasn't sure if we're. I, I thought you might have heard a little something about that. <laughs> were you there when she was still going? Just
1: terrific. No, no. I I saw her whole run, and it you know it started off, of course, with the Venus Williams victory, at which she so showed, showed so much poise because Venus was coming back at her so hard at the end of the second set, saving match points and looking like she might possibly turn the match around but Coco wouldn't have it. And then she kept going and of course all the way to the 16s and lost to what turned out to be the eventual champion, none of us knew at the time but Simona Halep, you know, the used all of her, her experience and professionalism to pick Coco apart, but to get to the 16s on her Wimbledon debut like this, you know, having gotten a wild card into the qualifying. What a what a what a great tribute that was to her and Wimbledon looked very good by having given her that wild card and then now you know she set the stage for, there's, there's something, that, 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 that her mentality, uh, you know, the poise that I mentioned, that the match playing acumen at, at such a young age. I'm really encouraged about her future.
0: And now she's up to 141 in the world. They're talking about giving her a wild card straight into the U.S. Open. They should,
1: yeah. Having done what she did at Wimbledon, it should be definitely into the main draw. And
0: I think that's what they're talking about doing. And I gotta believe if they play her on either Armstrong or Ash Stadium on opening night of the U.S. Open, that's gonna be you know almost like getting a ticket to Hamilton that night.
1: Yeah, I think I, I think she, they're gonna put her on Ash. To tell you the truth, I just don't think they can. It would be foolish not to. There's just so much interest in her. I suppose, you know, depending on how the draw breaks, they're going to have a tough choice because they like to put all the, the, this, the big names, established stars on. And, the, you know, all the night sessions are dominated by the likes of Djokovic and Federer and Nadal and Serena. And, and uh, so it, But on the other hand, this, this kid is so special that I, I, I've got to believe that we're going to see her uh, on Ash.
0: Well, let's hope so, and let's hope she does so successfully because there's going to be the pressure of expectations now. She was playing a little bit on the house's money. Steve, always great catching up, and as the hard court season progresses, I'd love to get together and uh kind of see how things are developing and, and moving toward Toward New York with all of these stops, uh, with all of this hardcore tennis in front of us. But it's been a good, a good go of it so far. Uh, Simona Halep now with two major championships to her credit. She's a French Open champion and a Wimbledon champion. Does that throw her into, say, Lindsay Davenport territory in terms of? Oh, I her-
1: think so. I think so. Yeah. You mean in terms of Hall of Fame, or- just
0: sort of the pecking order of women's tennis, kind of all time. I think
1: so. Listen, I think it. it you know, she's had those years at number one. She's been number one in the world. She's got two majors now, and frankly, I think we're going to see one or two more. Yep. Not a lot more, but that was so impressive, Andy. Three unforced errors across two sets. Wow. Well, that is just extraordinary, and and and, and no and no wonder, by the way, no wonder that Serena started to press and made some. Some bad errors herself because she was just being given nothing. Not to mention, Simona breaks her twice in each set, doesn't lose her own serve, faces only one break point, and Serena was serving at sixty-eight percent on first serves. Wow. So you have to really tip your hat to Simona for the for the the, the the match of her career, as she said herself. So I am encouraged that she could do this. Now she's won the French, she's won Wimbledon. No reason to me that she can't pick up an Australian or, or a U.S. Open over the next couple of years. Lastly, Andy, what are your thoughts on the Open on the men? I mean, we've talked about the need for somebody to step up, but if you had to call it now, who would you pick to win the
0: you know, to to the, the Open? It's, it's, it's hard not to go with Joker. I mean, obviously, I think uh, it's, it's just – I thought Rafael Nadal might win Wimbledon. I really did. I thought being seated third might be the fuel for his fire that he needed.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating that you say that. I didn't think he would necessarily win it, but I was convinced – that he would beat Roger Federer. I thought he would too. And uh, you probably noticed, I just looked at the tape today after getting back. I hadn't had a chance to look at the ESPN stuff and the projections. And most of their people, you know, they certainly, there was a lot of sentiment, Brad Gilbert and Patrick McInerney and others were definitely looking for Rafa to win that I was on site. And I, I was stunned by, the, by how much he pressed and how his inability to win some of the long rallies and, and how he sort of unraveled the last two sets. After splitting those first two sets and winning the second 6-1 after dropping a tiebreak, he really had a very difficult time throughout the third until he served to stay in the match at 3-5 in the fourth. Saves a couple of match points, saved a couple more in the next game, and had that break point for 5 all, But he left it too late, Andy. That was a very, a very disappointing performance. I still don't really believe he would have beaten Djokovic in the final, but I see your case. I definitely see why you believe that, because he was so good after the Kyrgios match, the way he took apart Sanga and Sosa and, and Sam Querrey. He was just brilliant in those three matches, and you thought he had the confidence and the way he was tagging that backhand cross court, but it was the backhand that let him down so badly against Federer.
0: I'm convinced that that, that lower ball on grass in the Federer strike zone around you know knee-high or lower versus waist-high or higher – is the difference in that matchup between those two guys and all those wins that Roger had over Rafa in two thousand seventeen and into two thousand eighteen, I think went a long way toward Roger walking out on that court expecting to win that tennis match. And there was some residual bitterness about the conditions that he was forced to play Nadal in uh at Roland Garros with those blustery wins and you were there for that one too, so
1: I was but it's, it's fascinating though Andy because I yeah, they they hadn't actually played since the fall of seventeen in Shanghai, before they in, until they played at, at Roland Garros. So Raf had been waiting so long for the chance to beat Roger, and wind or no wind, clay or no clay, he it meant a lot to him to just finally have the feeling of beating him again. And I, now you have to wonder, he, he, despite the points you're making about those waist-high ball, you know, lower balls, and in Roger's comfort strike zone, and No doubt, it's harder for Rafa to get that ball up above uh, Roger's shoulders or anywhere near there on the grass. But the courts were playing; everybody agreed they were slower this year. There's no, there's no doubt about it. That should have helped him, and it didn't. And frankly, I honestly believe Andy that he was, that that, there was sort of a his apprehension really made a big difference, and Roger could feel it. It was almost palpable. Roger really sensed it, and he. Then relaxed those last two sets and played great right up until he was trying to close them out. Then it got a little tense, but Federer had enough of a cushion to finish off Nadal. And now I'm beginning to wonder, as it's 24-16 in the rivalry, how is this going to end up? Roger might end up having a bunch more wins over Rafa, which is the last thing any of us would have anticipated prior to 2017. And the last point I make about that, Andy, is that it makes Novak Djokovic's victories over Roger in recent years as he raises his record to 26-22 and against Roger, all the more impressive when you consider that Federer is still playing well enough to be dealing with Nadal and to be turning that rivalry around in his favor to win six of the last seven matches. So that only heightens and and makes it more significant what Djokovic has been able to do head-to-head against Roger Federer.
0: Author of the greatest tennis matches of all time has spoken. He is Steve Flink. One of my favorite guests to get together with from time to time. Steve, always enjoy doing this with you. Thank you so much. Look forward to the hard court season and us getting together for our occasional visits. You've been listening to KickServeRadio.com, Tennis On Air with Andy Zoden. Catch us again real soon. Thank you so much, Steve.
1: Thank you, Andy.